It's time for Run, Bandy, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. So, you know the one about the frog and the boiling pot of water, right? You put the frog in water, and it heats up slowly, without the frog even knowing. And then, it gets boiled to death. Well, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but it is totally not true. It's a myth that people keep handing down generation after generation. It's a solid metaphor for things getting incrementally worse while you sit there, not noticing. But really, frogs jump out when the water gets hot, before it kills them, even if humans are not always so smart. When we left off last episode, Lori had sort of inexplicably refused to take a polygraph, which absolutely raised the temperature in the Christine Schultz murder investigation. Lori went from being a person of interest to a prime suspect. But that was just the beginning. Over the next few weeks, things would get gradually uncomfortable for her. And before she knew it, she found herself in really hot water. The police were out every day, filling their notebooks and their binders with evidence. And that wouldn't have been a surprise for Lori. As an ex-cop married to a detective, she knew the drill. What she didn't know were the conclusions that the cops were reaching. Apparently, they found two blonde hairs at the scene. Their first thought? Well, Bambi has blonde hair. Christine's hands had been bound with a rope made of clothesline. Uh, Bambi dried her clothes on a clothesline? Someone in a green jogging suit was spotted skulking around on the night of the murder. I can just hear those neurons firing. Whoa, you know who loves her jogging. Bambi freaking Bambenek. That's who. So all this was going on unbeknownst to Lori. Then, once police connected enough dots, they finally sent a detective to visit Lori at home. And Lori was happy to sit down and chat, totally unsuspecting. She didn't feel the heat. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. Episode 5. The detective who came calling at Lori and Fred's apartment was named Jim Gauger. He said he had a few questions about the Christine Schultz murder. And Lori, the frog in water, just to continue that metaphor for a moment, she wasn't all that worried about it. Besides, it seemed almost like a social visit. They cracked some beers, had a few laughs. Lori showed off her modeling portfolio while deploying all the colorful language and independent lady attitude she was known for. Detective Galger was shocked. Later, he said that she had the filthiest mouth of any woman he'd ever met. When they were talking about Christine, he claimed she even said, why would I kill that bitch? Then I'd have to take care of those rugrats. But chit-chat wasn't why Gauger was there anyway. He was actually trying to track down a vital piece of evidence, the murder weapon. So between sips of his beer, he might have had a few questions about Fred's firearms. Fred's alibi was pretty airtight, as we know, but the detectives had to tick off all their boxes. You know, procedure. So Gauger wanted to take a look at Fred's gun, the one that he'd had with him on duty that night. 
It was a military and police special with a four-inch barrel. And just for good measure, Gauger asked to take a look at Fred's off-duty gun, too. That was the one that Fred had taken out of the dresser drawer to show his partner, Michael Durfee, the night of the murder. The snub-nosed 38. Detective Gauger was going to take both guns down to the lab for some old-fashioned ballistics testing. Ballistics is an increasingly important and complex science. Now let's see what kind of pressure action we need for different guns. There's considerable muzzle flash, and the powder Here, continues... We can acquire digital images of the markings made by each firearm. Essentially, these are the fingerprints left by the gun on the bullet casing when it's fired. Sure, I get it. Every gun-bullet combination leaves a sort of calling card. And in the 1980s, ballistics ranked way up on the holy hierarchy of evidence testing. It was even higher than polygraphs. Rod Uphoff, a lawyer involved in the case, says it all made sense to him. Back then, ballistics seemed to be a really good science. I mean, I remember, you know, if people said, well, this bullet matched, you thought, well, then the bullet matched. I mean, shit. So back to Lori and Fred's place. Again, just to clear up any lingering questions, Detective Gauger asked Fred to bring both guns in. Oh, and thanks for the brewskis. So Fred handed over the weapons, along with his box of bullets, and off they went, the two of them, down to the ballistics lab. At the lab, they brought in the head ballistics honcho for the Milwaukee Police Department, a guy named Monty Lutz. You can't make this stuff up. Monty Lutz loaded the guns, fired a couple rounds, and analyzed the ballistic fingerprints. Remember, that's the unique set of markings a given gun will leave on a given type of bullet. Anyway, Lutz crunched his numbers, compared the markings, and here is the conclusion he came to. Fred's on-duty gun didn't look like a match. It was clean, as expected. But remember that first thirty-eight from the dresser drawer? The off-duty gun that Michael Durfee checked the night of the crime? In case you forgot, it was also the one whose serial number got lost when he threw away his notebook. He testified he wasn't obligated to keep it. Remember Michael Durfee? Oh, that's okay. I'll talk about that. Um, I like to think of that gun as the dresser drawer gun, the only one that Lori might have had access to. Well, even though last episode we established that it hadn't been fired that night, no scent on the muzzle, all that, Monty Lutz concluded that actually, yes. Somehow, the dresser drawer gun was the murder weapon, after all. For the MPD, it was the final piece of the puzzle. They had Bambi dead to rights. She was at home with the newly anointed murder gun. End of story. Here's reporter Timothy Meyer, the journalist from the Shepherd Express, who we've heard from a couple times now. And the detectives told me at the time they were very happy that she went down. They said it was Christmas time in summer. On June 24th, 1981, about a week after that scene at the crime lab, Lori was looking forward to a big music festival the next day. She was going to go with her friend from the police force, Patricia Lipsy. Summerfest is like a um, carnival-type thing. They have rides, and a lot of entertainers would come and perform, and something that's held uh, every year at the lakefront. There was an Angela Bofield concert, and we had tickets to go there. Angela Bofield is a soul singer specializing in songs about losing love and getting it back. But Lori wasn't going to make the concert. 
the Milwaukee PD had other plans. Around three in the afternoon, two hulking cops showed up and clapped on the handcuffs. One of my brothers called and told me that she was being arrested. I'm like, what? There were two police detectives and, and they said, you're under arrest. You know, and it was like a punch in the stomach. It was so, it was so unexpected. I, you know, it was nightmarish. They told her she was being charged with first-degree murder, brought her downtown, took her mugshots, and then a detective who, according to Lori, was a real creepy Marvel villain-like guy. He cornered her. He took out a ruler and measured her ponytail to see if it was as long as the killer's. Now, remember this guy. He's definitely going to come up again. News of her arrest traveled fast. Joanne from grade school, Lori's bestie, she couldn't believe it. Are you fucking kidding me? No way. There's no way. Your tummy gets tight. Your diaphragm is hard to breathe. You can't talk. You know, it's the, the what the fuck. I don't know. This isn't real. Lori was in there three days and three nights with no idea what was going on. She used her one phone call to reach Fred, who, according to Lori, said he couldn't come up with the $10,000 bail. And her parents were out of town, so her bail was posted by her Aunt Mary. As soon as Lori got out, she did something you wouldn't assume a person accused of first-degree murder would do, but it was something very Lori. She gave an interview. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning or something. It was very early. And I just knocked on the door, unannounced, Georgia Pabst, reporter for the Milwaukee Journal. And she came to the door wearing a white negligee and peignoir. She looked very calm and she said, oh, hi, uh, come in, I just got home. I spent the night in jail. Boom. So I walked in and we sat down and we started to talk. And she said she felt the arrest might have been retaliation for her sex discrimination suit. She described herself as a feminist who was interested in bettering the lives of women and curbing violence against women. She said, I could never do that to another woman. She also complained about the coverage. Lori had a lot to say about the journalists who had been writing about her, especially the ones who love the Playboy angle. Surprise, surprise. She didn't like the one that showed her posing for a sexy Schlitz brewing company calendar. She had been described as a kind of a blonde bombshell. And she just laughed at that. She thought that was funny. She said, they never showed a picture of me in my police uniform. She carried a picture of her in her police uniform in her wallet. And she was very proud of it, even though she'd been kicked off the force, basically. And she said that Christine had even visited her and Schultz in their apartment once or twice, and that there had been no animosity between them. She said, in fact, she brought over a blender for us to use one time. At some point, while Georgia and Lori are talking, Fred seemed to decide these two ladies need a chaperone. Schultz comes in from the bedroom or someplace. He's wearing jeans and a navy T-shirt. He sits down on a chair on the side and just kind of listens. He doesn't say very much. He just sat there with his hand on his chin, listening. And she's still wearing the negligee. Yeah. It's very Lori to wear a negligee this way. Even if, to the outside eye, it might have made her look a little like a floozy extra from the Dukes of Hazard. She'd just been in jail for three days. She wanted to feel comfortable, sexy, and she didn't really care what anyone thought of her at that moment. But now she was a famous murder suspect, and more importantly, a female murder suspect. Optics and appearances would be everything. 
Leaving the liberal 70s and moving into the 1980s, America was getting more conservative toward women. The Equal Rights Amendment had all but died in Congress. The promise of 70s feminism was starting to seem like a mirage. Lori didn't know it, but she was the living embodiment of this tug of war over who women could be. And a public image was emerging that she couldn't control. The femme fatale. The cold-blooded seductress. Which is obviously the opposite of how Lori saw herself. She was a barrier-breaking feminist ex-cop. Of course, the newspapers weren't interested in her take. She would deal with the press for months before her trial, from when she was arrested in June 1981 to March 1982. And during this time, she would really learn what reporters and the media thought of her, and women more generally. All the perceptions and the misperceptions. For Exhibit A, we talked to Kevin Fisher, a radio journalist who closely covered Lori's case. I was a young journalist at the time this case erupted, and I wanted to be unbiased. As much as people wanted to believe that this sweet, innocent, attractive young woman couldn't possibly have done it, she had means, she had opportunity, she was an alcoholic, she took dope, she, you know, lied when she was a police officer. This was not, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I believe she murdered somebody intentionally, in cold blood, the young mother of two small boys. But even reporters doing their best to be unbiased had to admit Lori's looks played into the narrative. For the most part, no, she did not look like the typical Milwaukee woman because she was attractive and she had a nice figure. She did. Lori wasn't cute in a relatable way. She took the tight-lipped Midwesterner thing to the nth degree. Being beautiful as a woman in America is fine if you make it cute and adorable. But if you're stone-faced and aloof, like Lori, the supermodel, that's scary. It seemed like the vast majority of Milwaukee was just mesmerized by this woman. So you're a damsel in distress caught in a terrible situation. What are you taught to do? Turn to an alpha male to rush in and save you. Lori was attracted to guys like that in her personal life. And it turns out that's what she wanted in a lawyer too. As she prepared for the trial, she found somebody so self-confident that he bordered on cocky. A guy who swept into any room and commanded it, whether you wanted him to or not. My name is Donald S. Eisenberg. I am a member of the State Bar of Wisconsin. I was renowned prior to Van Bennett for defending people. Everything from murder cases to robbery cases throughout the country. I've argued in the United States Supreme Court in a criminal case. Eisenberg did have an impressive track record. He'd also looked and sounded the part of an extremely competent lawyer. And like a lot of defense attorneys, he understood the importance of keeping his moral compass separated from the job at hand. It it was not a question of were they guilty or not guilty. Everybody is entitled to a defense. I asked my clients, tell me the truth. If you did it, I don't care. You have to be defended. I'm a lawyer, not a judge. 
But the defense attorneys that I know, they say, these clients never tell me the truth. They always say they didn't do it, and some of them did. Then they aren't very good defense lawyers. <laughs> when Lori and Fred walked into Don Eisenberg's office, he liked what he saw, and he figured a jury might, too. They were a nice couple. They were not scumbags. They were good people. And uh, I said, yes, I'll take your case. And uh, away we went. So what did they tell you? Well, <laughs> they, told me, they told me she didn't do it, okay? <laughs> now, the stakes in the trial were way lower for Fred than they were for Lori. The state had given him immunity, and basically in exchange for his testimony. Anyway, Eisenberg dug into Lori's paperwork, got everything going. But then he noticed a pretty significant glitch. Here's Chris Radish. Fred had actually cut a corner when he married Lorencia, the state law in Wisconsin back then, said that you couldn't get married for six months after you were divorced. And Christine and Fred had not been divorced yet for six months. It was less than three months. So, we don't have Fred's side of the story here, but it seems like that's why they went to Illinois to get married. It wasn't legal in Wisconsin. Which, according to Eisenberg, was a loose end that definitely needed tying up before the trial. So he summoned them to his office to make it official. Legal, anyway, after the fact. It was just a tense little ceremony. There was nothing borrowed, nothing blue. Lori didn't even bother with flowers. And then afterwards, they drove out to Lake Geneva, since it's pretty out there. And where'd they decide to go to lunch? The cafe at the Playboy Club, naturally. When Fred told their waitress that Lori used to work there, Lori claimed she was pretty annoyed. She ordered a whiskey. Not much of a honeymoon. But at least they were finally married in the eyes of the law for what it's worth. Now it was time for the trial. Lori headed downtown. Courthouse, it's a really beautiful place. Milwaukee has a lot of great architecture and history. The terrazzo floors and the hardwood benches are really iconic. Lori's grade school bestie, Joanne. Her trial get started on my birthday. Yeah, February 22nd, 1982, because it was the year after my graduation. Do you think about this now and think, oh my God, we were so young? We were so young, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I had been subpoenaed as a potential witness, I was not allowed in the courtroom. So I sat outside in the hallway and just listened through the door, the little bit that you could hear through the door. But every day, every single day from the 8 o'clock in the morning, and I would greet her and hug her, and she would have to go do what she did. Lori strode into the courthouse in a brown suit with pumps. But now she got a shock. Christine Schultz's murder trial was actually going to be the first gavel-to-gavel televised trial in Wisconsin history. You might think that the O.J. Simpson trial was the beginning of televised trials. The Bronco, the Knife, the glove. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That was 1995. Lori's trial was over a decade earlier, 1982. Here's an excerpt from her trial that doesn't rhyme, but it's still pretty memorable. The prosecutor had tried to get her to growl like the murderer. Can you try a little harder? Uh, Can you get a little lower? What would you like me to do? I'd like you to lower your voice and growl. Uh, you can't get any lower than that. Your Honor, that's That's an actual recording from inside the courtroom. 
But as we get into Lori's trial, we're going to be using a mix of archival tape and recreations to give you a sense of exactly how nuts it was. It was a three-ring media circus with Lori directly in the spotlight. Camera crews and curious Milwaukeeans showed up early today, hoping to get a glimpse of the deadpan defendant in this bizarre drama. There were elderly people, there were middle-aged people, there were young people of all races waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping that they would be lucky enough to be some of those to get inside the, the courtroom. The is the place to be. Onlookers were seen saving seats for their friends and eating Cracker Jacks in the courtroom. Back to you, Linda. Finally, the doors closed and people settled in, ready for the show. All rise. This court of the state of Wisconsin, the Honorable Judge Michael J. Swarovski presiding, is now in session. Case number 82522 CR. White in the gallery, please. The prosecutors went first. Here's how they saw it. Lori was this sexy young thing. She was a boozer. She loved the fast life. She wanted nice clothes, expensive jewelry, the finer things. And there she was living in lousy apartments with roommates like French-speaking Judy. While Christine is living in this baller house on Ramsey Avenue, which was lovingly custom-made by Lori's new husband, Fred. Obviously, Lori wanted the house. Again, this is the prosecutor's take. So Lori went to the house that night to scare Christine, I guess, to intimidate her so she'd move back to Appleton. Okay, she was there with no plans to kill anyone, just freak her out. And then, as she's standing there with a gun, Christine turns her head and recognizes her, and Lori spooks. She pulls the trigger. So it was up to the jury to decide if this was the right take. Lori was there for them to judge, sitting in the front with her lawyer, Don Eisenberg. I could see the judge, the jury, the other table, my table, and if I turned around and looked at the audience, I really saw nothing, because that didn't affect what I was doing when I was turning toward the witness stand, etc. The audience, huh? Anyway, Eisenberg says he was all business, nerves of steel. In his opening statement, he tried to convince the jurors that prosecutors had Lori all wrong. She wasn't this bleak, horrible, sinister person that they were describing. By God, she is a lovely young lady, he said, adding, you can't hold her looks against her. She was Lorencia from Catholic school. She played the flute as a kid. What kind of killer plays the flute? Brilliant. And now it was the prosecutor's turn again. The first witness they called pre-trial? Fred and Christine's 11-year-old son, Sean. His little brother didn't get such a good look, so Sean was the one who saw the murderer up close. The prosecution had to figure he was their star witness. Except, oops. I witnessed Sean Schultz, the victim's 11-year-old son, testified that Miss Benbenek did not, in fact, kill his mother. He says the person who broke in and threatened the boys was most certainly a man. He got on the stand and he said it was a man who had come to his house and killed his mother that night. A man. The prosecutor backpedaled. But could it have been a woman in shoulder pads? Sean said, no way. Even if it would have been Lori, it couldn't have been because even if she would have been wearing shoulder pads, it was the same width all the way down. He means to say that the killer didn't have an hourglass shape. He was a stocky guy with a thick middle. The child who testified was excellent. And it was not what the prosecution had thought it was going to be. 
that had to be extremely traumatic for that young boy. But it had to be done. Of course, all of the TV coverage was what he said, what he saw. And if I'm a TV reporter, that's going on at 10 o'clock news tonight. Who wouldn't be interested in this kind of story? It was dramatic. It was like a soap opera. It was like something you'd see on Perry Mason. I mean, it wasn't only like something you'd watch on TV. It was literally a TV show, a daytime drama with everyone watching. Now the prosecutors must have been beside themselves. They put this poor kid on the stand, their eyewitness, and he says unequivocally, Lori didn't do it. Case closed, right? But in the U.S. legal system, even facts have loopholes. To get past Sean's testimony, the prosecutors argued that Lori was in disguise that night, so she could have passed as a man. She was 5'10", and Sean said the murderer was more like 5'8", or 5'9". She was actually taller. Here's Chris Radish. There's this notion that Lori could dress up like a man because she was strong, tall, and athletic. But Lori couldn't dress up and drag if she tried for a week straight. She was definitely a feminine woman. The fact that they thought that she could be confused as the man in the house the night Christine was murdered it just seems very ludicrous to me. As the trial progressed, though, the tide began to turn against Lori. It was like an undertow. A few critical issues emerged. First, and most importantly, there was the gun that Lori was at home with, the dresser drawer gun, which the prosecutor was now calling the murder weapon. And good old Monty Lutz got up on the stand and he confirmed that. My, my, my opinion is that the state's exhibit number eight, the 38 special lead bullet, that was fired through the barrel of the state's exhibit number six. The fact that Lori was at home with that gun was critical and also really bad for her. But then things started to get sort of ridiculous, circumstantial and strange. The prosecution moved on to the killer's appearance, starting with the clothing. They had this shop clerk who said that she knew Lori was stealing some of her clothes from the store. And she also said that Lori had once left the store in a green jogging suit. So Eisenberg was listening to all this from the clerk, and then he turned to her during the trial, and he said, are you jealous of Laurie because she's prettier than you? Yeah, Eisenberg actually asked the witness if she was jealous of Laurie. Even though a lot of the media's reaction, and the jury's reaction, and everyone's reaction was about Laurie's looks, you weren't supposed to say that out loud. When he finished talking, the entire audience erupted into boos. It was a, just a, a, a horrible move on his part. So they made a plausible case for the gun and for the jogging outfit, sort of. But then they introduced an even stranger piece of evidence. They claimed to find a fiber at the scene that was consistent with a wig. So they'd established that the killer was blonde, right? Because they had blonde hairs at the scene. But she might have been concealing that blonde hair under a wig, which she wore in a ponytail. Who knows? Then the prosecution brought in another interesting witness who was a woman who had a wig store who said that Laurie had bought a wig there in exactly the same reddish-brown color in the shape of the killer's wig. Now, Laurie did have a wig. She had that short blonde one that she wore on the police force because Chief Briar rules no hair below the collar. 
But this wig, it was a shaggy, frumpy brown thing, and she claimed she'd never had anything like it. Isn't it a fact that uh, you, in fact, bought a wig from that ye old wig world in the early spring of 1981? No. But the witness stood firm. So the woman who owned the wig store also said she knew for certain it was Lori because she had written a check and she recognized her name on it. And it was later discovered that Lori didn't even have a checking account, but she absolutely knew it was Lori because her cousin was Lori's cousin and she recognized her and it went on and on. There are a lot of crazy people who like to get up and testify because they want to make their own point of glory. When you look at all the mistakes the lawyers made on both sides, it seems like everyone was trying to lose this case. From an entertainment standpoint, it was going from drama to farce. Still, with all that circumstantial evidence and unreliable testimony that the state was depending on, you had to figure it was the eyewitness testimony that would win out. 11-year-old Sean, who swore that Lori didn't do it. It looked really good for the defense. But then, another key witness sashayed into the courthouse, one that Lori hadn't seen coming. Her friend and her old roommate, French-speaking Judy Zess. Lori spotted her in the hallway and had one of the most awkward conversations ever. They made small talk for a minute until Lori realized that Judy was wearing a wedding ring. So yeah, she got married to bodybuilding Tom, drug-dealing Tom, Mr. USA, who was in prison. Lori was confused, but it was time to take their places in the courtroom. And sure enough, it turned out that Judy was there to testify, but for the prosecution. When she got in the stand, Judy had a lot to say, starting with Lori's collection of activewear. She had, um... Four jogging suits, actually. Red, blue, brown, and green. Judy was just getting started, and she was going to confirm a lot of the testimony that seemed so outlandish from those other witnesses. Judy claimed the wig was, in fact, Lori's. And not only that, Judy said she knew exactly where Lori had stashed it after the murder. After all, they'd been besties, roommates. Judy says she knows for a fact that Lori flushed it down the toilet at their old apartment. Lori was dumbfounded, and maybe you are too. But Judy's not just making this up. There was a plumber who actually found a wig in their pipes. Well, the whole wig episode is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. No woman in her right mind would put anything besides a piece of Kleenex or a Tampax down a toilet. Lori would never put a wig in a toilet. Nobody would put a wig in a toilet except somebody who was trying to frame somebody, perhaps. Never mind that the wig Lori owned when she was on the police force was blonde. The jury just heard the big headline, murder wig found in Lori's pipes. But the most damning part of Judy's testimony had nothing to do with disguises or fibers. It had to do with motive. First-degree murder is contingent on intent. And so far, the prosecutors hadn't even touched that. Until Judy told them that Lori wanted Christine dead. My mom invited Lori and Fred over to her house to say congrats for their marriage. And at the dinner, Lori was acting really weird. She said she wanted to live in the Ramsey Avenue house because Fred was paying for it. And she also thought the alimony Fred was paying Christine was too, too much, like 700 bucks a month. 
And Laurie said it would pay to have Chris dusted, blown away. The prosecution asked if Judy thought Laurie was joking about Christine or saying that seriously. I think it was a little of both. The intent behind it I thought was serious. But often people say that and, you know, never really follow through. But they still feel it in their heart. Wait, what? This sounded like a hedge. But the damage was done. As the trial wrapped up, Lori was getting very, very worried. The bunny bimbet killer was taking shape before her eyes. On the stand, people were falling for it. Here's what she told ABC News. They want it both ways. Like, they want me to be savvy and manipulative and charismatic and this Fengali stuff. But they also want people to believe that I would be stupid enough to commit a murder with my husband's gun. Like, you know, either I'm really stupid or I'm not. Lori wasn't going to let herself get played. So she decided to change her tactics. She went to her closet and she selected the most demure outfit she owned. A white blouse buttoned all the way up to the collar. It was almost Victorian. The defense had her dressed with this very simple blouse that was practically up above her chin. And she was covered from head to toe. So you didn't see the, the usual... Lori Bembenek with these lovely clothes. She looked like a nun that was out of her habit. This really made some people angry. The idea that Lori was trying to pull a fast one and look like a prude when she had been a Playboy bunny. Everybody had seen those Miss March pictures with her cleavage out. She was not only transgressing female categories, trying to be a cop, being so uppity, but now she thought she could play the jurors for fools. I think one of the worst mistakes she made was wearing that stupid-ass peasant blouse to the, to the peasant trial. Blouse, yeah. Because the blouse didn't help. She'd already made a certain kind of impression. Here's what the prosecutor said in his closing argument. Maybe you think our office doesn't like Laurie because she's one of those smart-ass women's livers and she's also very beautiful, she's an attractive dresser, <clears throat> and because she likes to compete with men, doesn't want children... She kept her last name and wants to be called Ms. No, it's because she brutally killed Christine Schultz. But it's easy to see that the prosecution's case was full of guessing and holes. The judge himself said it was probably the most circumstantial case he'd ever seen. And yet, he let it continue. Kevin Fisher again. This was not a perfect textbook in investigation. But I, I, I didn't see enough dirtiness, if you will, to say that they messed up and arrested the wrong person. I had heard enough. I had read enough. The evidence, I think, was there that she did it. The jury has been sequestered and presumably already beginning their deliberations. It could be several days before they reach their conclusion in this unusual case. As the jury deliberated, Lori was spending time with Joanne and her parents, just trying to keep it together. Lori and I met up with her attorney at lunch one time. It was a really elegant place, probably the most elegant place I've ever been. And uh, we were waiting, and it was the next day after that that the jury came back. We found out that the jury had come to a verdict, and I'll never forget it. I took an elevator up to the courtroom, and it's quiet as all get out in there. It was March 9th, 1982. I couldn't imagine 
how many times she must have thrown up and waiting and waiting. Um, but when it finally came back, it was quite a shock and her face was just blank. We, the jury, find the defendant, Laurencia Bembenek, guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the information. It is the sentence of this court that you, Laurencia Bembenek, are to serve a term of life imprisonment in the Wisconsin State Prisons. I was sitting in a row of seats in the same row as Alfred Schultz. And when the verdict was read, he buried his head into his hands. He, he couldn't believe it. Disco Fred seemed genuinely surprised. Uh, we attempted to prepare ourselves for everything, but I was, of course, very, very shocked by what had happened. She, there was no emotion. I don't want to say it was cold, but there was absolutely no display or a reaction of any kind from Lori Bembenek, and she was quickly escorted out of the courtroom. She was cold, distant, and emotionless, like the way a sociopath might be. The thing is, when the verdict was read, her head was down and her back was to the camera. So her face was mostly hidden to the world. All you could see was her blonde hair. And yet everybody remembers what they thought her reaction was. Like so many other things in her case, the details just got lost. Because the truth is, Lori was anything but stoic. I mean, my, my back was to the camera, but the, the sheriffs that took me up in, in, in the elevator uh, you know, could be my witnesses. I, you know, I was sobbing so hard, I couldn't hardly breathe. It's like a defense mechanism. You can't even bring yourself to believe that you just got a life sentence, you're not going anywhere, you're convicted, that's it, that's all. The Lori, whose face they didn't really see, became a blank slate that people could project their own feelings about women on. Or maybe their fears about women. Women who'd started to act outside the old boundaries of how women were supposed to be. Lori was distant, ruthless, whatever. And now she was supposed to have moved off stage forever. Locked up, no key. She would have years to sit and obsess and wrestle with questions over what just happened. How did she get here? Who did this to her? Was it some sort of personal vendetta? Or was it a conspiracy? She was going to figure it out. She might not have been a cop anymore, but she could be a detective. Next time on Run, Bambi, Run. I think she wasn't all that nice to some of the men in her life. And that's an understatement. None of those officers of the criminal activity she reported, none of them got charged. How can you trust a convicted murderer? She was sleeping with one of the lead detectives. He went over to the house and ended up in bed with her and in the shower with her and who knows where else. Almost every police officer that tried to intimidate me into changing my opinion got in my face and told me she's guilty. Run Bambi Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campsite Media. 
It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Craigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon and our archivist is Megan Shuve. This episode uses a mix of archival audio from Lori's trial and recreations. The voices are Lloyd Lockridge, Annie Yoakum, Julie Scherer, Tanya Winch, and Sam Winch. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scherer, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long, Ewen Lai Tremuin, and Campside's operations team, which is Amanda Brown, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run, Baby, Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for listening.